Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. Today, I have the pleasure of talking once again with Barney Dicker. Now, Barney provided me a lot of notes. And while I was waiting for the call, I actually started looking at Chris McDowell's Bastion Land and Into the Odd. Can you talk a little bit about what has happened since we last spoke? Talk a little bit about this rule system which has captivated you. And maybe um, yeah, you might be jamming at a local con as well. Maybe talk about that too. Sure. Thanks for having me again. I'm full of cold, but I would say also full of gaming joy. Wonderful. Um, so I think we spoke last in the height of the summer. Possibly, which, yeah. So now we're at the height of autumn, aren't yes. we? So I've had a really good good summer of gaming, all sorts of things, which I guess in current terms did peak, peak... Uh, Nearly two weeks, no, a week ago, one mm. week ago, um, <laughs> at, a, at a local at the local gaming con mm-hmm. where I ran a, a role play session, and as you mentioned, it was using Chris McDowell's Into the Odd system, which he is on the verge of of advancing via Kickstarter, but as I understand, it's already done, um, and turning into the odd into electric bastion land which mm. is where i got into uh the what hit into his work um which i think i heard some about an interview with him on uh what would the smart party do podcast they interviewed him and and i just thought this is incredible amazing mm. and started to dig into that then so it's uh it's kind of nominally probably set in the uk this world of bastion land and bastion is the capital city which is nominally probably london Hmm. taking the kind of dungeon crawl format of your classic role play games he's given that a twist that you go into the underground so that is both on the one hand uh, some kind of dilapidated form of the underground transport system and these openings up into the the a, liter, a more literal or more mythological underworld shall we say hmm. underneath bastion um and there's all sorts of funny they're not even rules really but principles to create bastion being chaotic there's also these ideas of what's beyond bastion so out in the wilds if you like. Um, and that's a kind of the, the wild, I can't remember what he calls it in the rules. Um, the wilderness areas, let's say there's a kind of parallel there with the underground, mm. if you like, as in terms of adventuring possibilities. Um, and so it kind of has a, a steampunk diesel punk kind of thing going on. I like that. It doesn't, it does something else slightly with that idea. Um, in a really nice way and this electric bastion land which is come is in the pipeline apparently um takes bastion land into the electric age Mm. um so it's so it's all roughly kind of set around 1900 ish maybe something like that but everything's very fluid in my precursory scan through it there seemed to be and this is through his bastion land blog i should point out which has a Patreon attached to it. He seems to be exploring a variety of crazy-looking robots, which I guess are, are electronic okay. versus steampunk. I, I might have mm-hmm. a completely different view of this thing because you've immersed yourself and and played it at a local con. Yeah, and I'm just reading the most precursory, fastest thing I can gather online to talk remotely yeah. coherently about it. When did you hear about this game first? Was it about? Three months ago, or was it more recently? Well, I, I think I think the episode from of the interview with what would the smart party do? I think that was August or something. Okay, and and basically, basically the whole world of of OSR of old school role playing kind of hadn't hadn't dawned on me, and it was it always it, you know I realise now that it was just just there, just mm-hmm. right next to everything, but suddenly this kind of this, this this realm of people putting out one page 
rule systems or you know whole role play games one page role play games um or say 12 page role play games or 50 page role play mm. games like into the odd um and kind of self-publishing them and latching on to those familiar that familiar format in some regards but then making other mechanical innovations or conceptual innovations in other ways it's just really fascinating there's 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 loads of there's loads of stuff can you but, unpack but, but, can you yeah. unpack osr just for folks listening in because i think the yeah. notion of of old school role playing is something which i think is implicit perhaps in a lot of people's thinking about this space but what does osr mean specifically to you and what do you feel it has been termed as when it's used as a term? Well, again, you know, I'm really coming to this incredibly fresh, but but it's clicked with me, if you like. Um, in the interview, uh, Chris McDowell is asked about uh, OSR and what it means to him and how much into the odd and electric bastion land fit into that. And he says, well, it's, it's useful to a degree, uh, but it's certainly now more than that. Um, and over time, and this is the really interesting bit, he says over time, he thinks OSR will be less significant because we will have moved into some other stage in our development of role play games. But OSR is a specific term here. Indeed. Means what? So, so my understanding is that after, I guess it's Wizards of the Coast made the Dungeons and Dragons system open source or I don't know quite what you creative commons or whatever. Yes. Okay. That, yes, that, that kind of unlocked the possibility for people to start to create systems using that, those, those core mechanics. And so then as a result of that, you, you have things that hark back to, to certain rule systems or worlds or you know there's a kind of a nostalgic drive or then you have other ones that seem to go on their own kind of goofy gonzo direction which you might say plays a part in into the odd but then you also have other other systems that have very minimal connections to to those those oh that older that older those older systems and are kind of doing their own thing i the sense i get from it is that more often than not they're trying to keep things quite simple Mm. as i look around uh, my piles of fighting fantasy books of chain mail Mm. the original you know gary gygax rules of first edition DD of runequest i guess i'm trying to it's always very curious to me when people say the Pathfinder, which is third edition, 3.5, is the point where we declare this as being old school role playing. <laughs> uh-huh. And then, uh-huh. and I, I guess certainly it's it's an interesting definition because I think it it you know when people that might have played first edition D and D or you know might have even been prior to that or you know in that space look at the yeah. notion of old school role playing, they think well there it's like you know, when your favorite music is. It's when you're a teenager, right? It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting that this thing has been branded associated with a time which I would think is well past any notion sure. of... And what I also find that's curious through this is the notion of commerce in the definition. Anyone can mm-hmm. make any set... When I met Jackson and Livingston, they lamented the Lone Wolf rule set that it had just ripped off fighting fantasy. Well, no, actually... Uh-huh. The way copyright works is you can basically plagiarize almost anything with impunity, provided you make a small set of subtle tweaks. What Pathfinder yeah. did fundamentally was just mean that a group of, I don't know where they are now, probably in their mid-30s, but of that age group now, uh, had uh, access to a rule system and could start publishing their own modules and selling their own modules. It was a capitalistic effort. Mm-hmm. But there have been countless, I mean, as my discussions with Chris Abbott showed, there have been countless people that have tweaked their own rule systems and done this through any, you know, any different period. What interests me about the notion of mm. old school role playing as a thing is an ability to have creative freedom 
and to utilize this creative freedom in taking um, completely, you know, uncharted worlds, for example, the London Underground system in a steampunk, mm-hmm. you know, that to me is more associated with the freedom of, of thought and ideas, which removes it from these things. But it's interesting, the definition that returns to this very, I don't know, I mean, it was, it appeared curious at the time, but you've got mm-hmm. to also appreciate in the early 2000s, everyone was talking about open source, right? Late 90s, mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. 2000s. So I think they were looking to try and get on that open source bandwagon as well with regards to doing this thing, which might have, you know, grabbed a certain group of nerds and, you know, minds at the time. But it's interesting yeah. when you look at things like freeform role playing, which I think is a distinctly unique movement in the late 80s, for example, the elimination of dice rolls and paper and this kind of stuff and just mm-hmm. rule systems were, were very abstract. They've, they're not really part of this narrative in any way. So I guess we all take things that we like at certain times and try to reassemble something out of it. But let's talk a little bit. So you sure. found out about this yeah. in August and yeah, you're playing I mean, the convention in late September. So yeah. a very so, fast I mean, learning so, curve. So I would say that I, I'm not especially attracted to Dungeons and Dragons and I'm not especially attracted to the mechanics really. Um, and when, but when I heard Chris McDowell talking about it, I just, there was something about it that I just thought this is really amazing. This is really, really excellent what he's doing. And so for example, a great thing about Electric Bastion Land, well, I mean, I don't know if I've, I've, I've explained it enough. Basically you you're treasure hunters because in this world, everyone is after arcana or oddities or magical items. It's kind of like everyone wants to be a vintage or antiques collector or dealer or something. And, and that's the opportunity to create these weird, uh, these weird items, which, which are, yeah, which, which are being used on the one hand, perhaps at the more minor end and are being kind of collected for reward at the at the major end and what is so fantastic about electric bastion and this new system that's coming out is you have an x career now he does acknowledge that the that the warhammer fancy role play career system was was really influential mm. in putting that together but his twist on that is you have an x career you were so bad at it that you've now become a treasure hunter. But more to the point, you are now something like £10,000 in debt. Mm. And that, to me, just seems like a fantastic, incredibly simple motivating factor Mm. that you basically have to take on any job because you're being hounded by whoever it is that you owe money to. Now, this is where you start to get the sense that there's a really great sense of humor running through this whole thing and um the ex-careers that you've had the people you owe the money to um the types of treasure that you're after everything is has this has this really really interesting humor which is not just comical and and makes you laugh it it it, it's doing something it has some kind there's some there's something going on there Mm. um deeply it's deeply funny and that that appeals to me greatly so um so there was a there was another role play game that i had been digging around finding out about and it's called heart and it's the sequel to spire Mm. and i think it's made by some guys called something like rook rowan and deckard and that was this heart was as far as I could gather in a play test phase. So I thought, okay, I'll see if I run that and, and try and be able to offer them some feedback for the play test phase. And then I was in contact on discord, which is really quite mm-hmm. new to me. Um, and th- th- they pointed out that the, uh, the, the play test period was over. So that kind of, on the one hand, deflated my motivation of uh, of wanting to run it to give them some real feedback. Some more, you know, they have lots, but to give them some more feedback. And I also thought, I'm not sure that in this short space of time, I can really get a handle on the rules enough to kind of do it justice. 
that's where I came back to Into the Odd, which I had already started looking at and getting into. And the rules the complete rules for Into the Odd, which have been published, are something like 50 pages. And I'd gone through that a couple of times. And there's also various, I think there's, you know, there's various other bits on, on uh, the Bastion Land website. Uh, and there are two playtest packages and some other bits and bobs knocking around for, in, for Electric Bastion Land, the sequel. So I basically tried to put them together, uh, which basically works because they're completely compatible give or take Mm. um so a friend reminded me that uh my local city was having this games convention i'd seen a poster somewhere and forgotten about it and that's called gamesvention Mm. so if anyone wants to look up gamesvention.de they will find the website it's in germany in bavaria and uh i i this friend reminded me that this was happening just over a week before and i looked on the website and they seemed very open and encouraging for people to offer role play games even kind of on the day mm. so i thought oh well okay um i'll i'll pitch something and send it in and see what happens so i think then you know i'd made my dis- i was making my decision about which which system to run and then i sent it off to them i think on the tuesday before the weekend that it happened so last weekend Mm. um and got a nice prompt reply um and they uploaded it to the website and so in all of that time the idea the ideas for the for the for the scenario that i wanted to create were were forming so within a week i suppose in a a week i had decided i was going to run into the odd and that i was developing the uh, the outline for the scenario what is very interesting i think uh to note is that i did the same scenario three times mm. um so it was really interesting to see how those different groups played through it and how the idea took shape with those with those groups so i you know i haven't gm'd a role play game in years decades probably and this is the first time that I've ever seriously wanted to try to put a scenario together, mm. you know, in, in some, you know, in some kind of adult way, I, I think, um, I guess the stuff I would have done as a teenager, if I can remember that properly, would have been based on scenarios or some kind of vague sense of something, you know, probably, you know, sandbox to the to the horizon something like that so so that was interesting to 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 really focus my mind on on a on a scenario and then to to kind of top that all off i've never ever gm'd a convention with more or less random people Mm. um and i was thinking oh god is is anyone going to show up how's it going to work so and I should add as well that I was offering it in English in Germany. Mm. Um, and I, so I thought that's interesting to try out because on the one hand, I thought that would, might well be appealing to some people and it would also then be, you know, prohibitive perhaps to some other people. Mm. I tried to recruit a couple of my students, hence actually the third session, because that was the only one they could make. So that one was a short notice one an addition mm. i i said i'd do two originally um my son played in one of them and uh a couple of other friends they also played uh and and someone else from the local games group i kind of bumped into on the first session and and he said but i haven't had any breakfast yet and i said that's okay uh it's fine and then he said yeah but i haven't had any breakfast Unfortunately, he came back into the room with his breakfast whilst I was setting up, and he had a great time. So, so <laughs> and each time, each time they were they were basically full up. I said maximum six people. Gosh, I had six six people twice. Gosh, um, and five the other times. So um, let's talk a little bit about the scenario. Let's do this thing formally because I'm okay. interested in hearing about the scenario. Yes. Okay. So, like I said. It's a, it was a mix of Into the Odd and Electric Bastion Land. I thought, right, I'm aiming for two and a half hours, three hours. Mm. It's a convention. As a teacher, I'm pretty good at planning out, 
you know, how to spend the time and how to kind of hit the target points for a session um, and to keep a engagement going. So I, I, I didn't feel daunted by that in itself. Um, so um, I took I took the 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 kind of proto or partial pre-generated character system that Chris McDowell's put together for the Electric Bastion Land, where there is there's twenty there are twenty different ex careers that you can have. Hmm. There will be a hundred, I believe, in the in the the published one, and they also then have personalization processes in there a really nice thing that he does is if your character is statistically weak so you're rolling three die six for strength dexterity and willpower or charisma you know old old school stuff if your if your character is weak you will probably do better or poor weak or poor you'll probably do better in what items you get under your ex-career if you're if you're you know stronger and richer uh, statistically stronger and richer you you won't have such good things so and that's something that he also has in a more basic table in the original into the odd which is which is really nice i think a really nice thoughtful great way to get into the characters i'm kind of possibly getting a little bit ahead of myself there because this is now how the 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 players created their characters but i think it's good to know that that i was just wanting to serve up quite promptly characters for the for the players to to be Mm -hmm. to be um and but also would play to the fun the fun of it um i decided to call it electric hell we've got the underground theme and this coming of electricity so uh, the 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 mission for these um heavily in debt uh adventurers is to locate a an undefined and large electrical power source Mm. and that they would have to link it up with the grid if you like or the, the 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 generator system of a of a company that is um prospecting if you like for electric possibilities and to that end i thought well what they need is an infinite indestructible power cable Hmm. so that's what they took with them so that got around any kind of major problems of how to get the cable to god knows where Um, you know a bit like uh wily coyote or road you know in a roadrunner cartoon or something like you know an acme Hmm. an acme item they also had uh, camouflage clay that would hide the ca- any, any item any object for a thousand years if they wanted to disguise it and they had a harpy's claw which would connect anything that was attached to it to another object forever for eternity mm. so they so the, the so the company gave them those items with which to fulfill this aim in the system you you create a, a an arch rival so I created an arch rival who is on their on their tail as they as they go through as they go through the the underworld. I decided that I would have three map sections for the time and the length of the of the the adventure. There was a an earlier scene which was quite important because that's when it announces that the rival is on their trail. I guess I was I was trying to apply some of the ideas that I've come across by this guy on YouTube who goes under Runehammer, mm. who's done the the index card roleplay game, who is I think has some very very great insights, and he's always trying to say you know get them get the players to 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 have to act. So he uses timers, you know, dice defined timers and that kind of thing. So I basically had the rival announce his appearance, injure one of the players, and was 1d6 behind them in terms Mm. of rests. Mm. So it kind of put the pressure on them. I found myself, I decided to use a a very simple mechanic of whoever rolled the lowest would suffer the hit. So they get shot at 
almost at random from a great distance by the by this rival who injures the one who rolled the lowest and that hit is i don't know 1d4 1d6 i can't remember which which then also announced the 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 damage system in the game which which i'm not totally sure about but it does work basically you don't roll to succeed with damage you deal damage directly if you say i'm going to shoot at someone you deal that damage directly once the hit points are at zero or any armor's been deducted uh it starts to come off strength strength won't be recouped but you can recoup your hit points if you rest which is just a momentary thing sit Mm. down have a drink of water your hit points are back up so that's that's interesting that's interesting and i thought right i want to play it quite deadly i didn't manage to kill anyone Mm. i killed no characters and i made it harder and harder every time Mm. but by the last one i was eating in much more to uh, the character's strength and there's also then critical damage so if you if you faint basically collapse and need to be tended to so there was a lot more of that but anyway so i i obviously there's i was thinking about this this, this on the one hand there were some railroady aspects mm. and at the same time there were some very open aspects and i and i don't know what you call the midpoint or if that's what the ideal the sweet spot is anyway so i wanted to say this is happening you need to keep going this is the situation but within that then lie lots of possibilities for them mm. so i had these three key stages after that initial that initial encounter that i just mentioned we had a, a dodgy dodgy bridge uh, a classic dodgy dodgy bridge um now that was important because I decided that the character guiding them was always going to die at that point. Mm. And they would realize that things are not as they seem quite. And that, yeah, it's not as it's not as straightforward as it's going to be. So there was a dodgy bridge, which to begin with, I want last person to cross to pass a charisma test. I think they all failed, which meant that it wasn't that the guide had to be the last person to cross the failing bridge that he could always miraculously you know heroically save them Mm. um, and then smash into the cliff edge on the other side and fall down onto a little ledge so they had to pull him up and all sorts of things so there's lots of motivation and then just pulling the rug away from them um, at various points Um, by the third game I decided that everyone had to make did I say a charisma test? I meant a dexterity test. Mm. Everyone had everyone had to roll a dexterity test, and anyone who failed had to lose an item that they dropped it. Mm. Um, so again, just depleting them, um, but not making it fatal. Like suddenly we've lost. Oh dear, we've lost someone down the bottomless abyss. That worked well. That worked well every time. That was good. Then I gave them three three exits or three pathways to choose. Mm. I'd written down which one does what. Mm-hmm. Every time they picked the one that meant that the rival gained two rests mm-hmm. on from them, which basically meant that he was waiting for them at the other end, which was the town, the, the shanty town in the underground, which was the last place this power source had been sighted. Mm. And uh, uh, I called it Gloom Under Sluice, mm-hmm. and it's it, it was it was basically a Roman uh, sewer. You're in a Roman sewer, and there is a big sluice there, and the shanty town has been built up on top of that. They get there, and they're being t- they've been told that they can get some more food or provisions or equipment or rest or any of that kind of thing, and it's absolutely wiped out, completely decimated. It's been crushed, uh, burnt, and melted by acid. Mm. I don't know if you want me to give away too much stuff, or if, uh, if, I, I, if, if this is if, what you want. I mean, my my perspective here, which I think yeah. makes it interesting, even though you've indicated that you did kind of tighten the noose, so to speak, as you proceeded to yeah. play each one, what kind of character archetypes came to play in each of the games? And how did these character archetypes fundamentally change the dynamics of the games okay okay good stuff good stuff 
Yes. Okay. So I suppose to finish that point again, I disappointed them again. I gave them a, a sole surviving character uh, who gave them some more information, and then they headed on to 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 locate the the power source and to confront the 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 rival. Mm. That was my planning process in terms of the experience of of if you like running that then for the for the players. We we rolled these ex careers. They generated names, which which are in some of the documents. They got their their equipment and their special abilities and so on and so forth. What we also did was everyone drew a little card figure of mm. of their character. So so not only could everyone see, if you like, who was there, and we could use them on the maps. I hoped that the the players would also go through a process of kind of actually internalizing and coming to terms with the character, the archetype that they were playing and developing. Um, um, a, a dead shoresman came up a couple of times. So he was literally a dead sailor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a broken oar and cold blood. And he had some kind of magical item that he could use when he died that he could be reborn again. So he popped up a lot. Um, there were trying to think of what else to, there was an integrated foreigner. What else? What else? Oh, we had a a a, a sideshow performer or something, a theatrical performer, mm-hmm. something like that. So we had this really diverse group of of people and a shamed ex lawyer, uh, things things like that, things like mm. that. So so a real motley crew of people. The really, really interesting thing was I did voices and tried to, you know, always did my best to really animate the situation. And everyone really did invest. They totally invested. But nobody did any voices for their own characters. Not one mm. that I that I can really recall. Um, they, they, they performed you know they 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 enacted the characters and they they frequently kind of referred to to their experience uh, or the items that they had um and were very inventive with all of that uh, but there but there wasn't they didn't embody it in that sense of taking on a voice or anything like that i mean within the system there's there's this there is this archetypal dynamic to it or dimension to it but at the same time it's that's really being twisted and subverted and you have these these almost useless aspects to the characters but i think that really adds something that kind of makes them much more rich for the for the players especially when they've jumped straight in straight into it mm. um as the I, at the beginning i made it very clear that they're a group that they split their cash that they kind of share their debt in that sense and that they that they trust each other, that they've worked together a lot, because I really just wanted to make them feel immediately like they knew each other and that they were going to work as a team. And and although there are a couple of jokes about perhaps turning against people in, in one group, I seem to remember, um, they they all did do that. I know I've remembered what I was going to say. I was really interested how the the the, the relationship between the the kind of in world fiction if i dare say that the in-world uh activities and the the player meta level would interact and i'd heard some discussion or several discussions about that recently and i was wondering oh how's that going to go and is that going to be a problem with knowledge that the players have that the characters don't and so on and so forth and i just kind of sat back to see how that would work itself out. And I thought it worked wonderfully. And again, to come back to our topic about immersion, I felt like the players were totally immersed within our social group, our real social group, and within the story. And they would shuttle between that effortlessly. So I didn't haul them up when they're having conversations about uh, amongst themselves between people who are further on down a tunnel and the others who are back at the sluice opening it or closing it because 
it seemed totally natural and healthy for them to be debating how they would work as a team. And also, because you're dealing in a kind of shorthand dialogue between them, they're, they're not going to talk about, well, okay, if five minutes have passed, we'll turn the sluice down really low, or we'll send a couple of signals to do this, that, or the other. It, you know, there's no point in doing that, because it's kind of boring detail. Whereas to allow them to try and develop their strategy or their tactic or to to dig more into possibilities uh, as a group seemed the absolutely natural natural thing to do. There was lots of humour, lots of lots of laughter about the characters that they were and the types of activities or the types of things they would do or say especially at the beginning with the with the the creation of the characters and so i think that says something about about the archetypes in terms of the three distinct games however ah yeah oh yes how yes. did they distinguish themselves in terms of the individual players yeah okay hmm so in in each step of the way certain things recurred and like they all picked the third tunnel which um, which I couldn't believe. <laughs> there was lots of debate and some rolled dice and all of you know different things, but in the end they all chose the same way. So some things recurred, even though there were possibilities for differences, but there were also radically different things they did. They, they used items differently. They um, they they helped each other differently, and that that did come back to different the different characters that they were at and the different items that they had with them as well. Um, in terms of the group dynamics, I mean, so so in the, in the very first group, there was one person that I previously knew, and then there were two more couples. Is that right? Did we have, was it five? And then, no, and then another, someone else came, I think. So what am I saying there? I'm saying that you had a couple of pairs who obviously they already knew each other. I had this one connection with one person. Um, there were there were there were two women in the first group, two and two in the second group, and one in the third group. Ages did vary. Um, um, my son, who obviously I know very well, and was probably the youngest player was in one session. Then I had two students. So they, I could see they were a little bit fascinated to see what their teacher does in this other context. One of them had never played a role play game before the other one plays Pathfinder and so on. Um, so, so what I'm, what I'm addressing there is each group was, was in itself different and had different, mm. uh, yeah sensibilities i would i would put it um the first group i remember they just got straight into asking the guide about the power source and where they're going and i remember the third group basically didn't say anything <laughs> they were really happy for for this kind of if you like a cut scene to just take place you know where where I say, yeah, we're going down the tunnel. We're leaving behind this, that, and the other, and we'll take take about two days. Diddly 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 diddly. And that was the, the group with your students and your son. That was. Yeah. Uh, my son then was in the second one. Oh, okay. I thought he was um, in the third. Okay, good to know. Okay. And and yeah, and what's also really fascinating is when people are looking at you and you th and and it feels like they're looking at you kind of quizzically or skeptically or something. And then a moment or two later, you you they they give you a, the opposite feeling that they're actually having a great time, and that's a that's always always a uh, an interesting, slightly uneasy but then rewarding feeling to have. Um, I, am I am I answering that 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 question? Do you want to know more about then the group dynamics as these characters performing these tasks? I mean, I think what's interesting here is. I I hadn't GM'd for maybe 20 plus years, but when I came back to it, it was very much associated with identifying archetypes, identifying trajectories. Now, not in the same format that you're doing. The nature of two and a half to three hours in a yeah. reproducible setting at a convention is a distinctly different thing. 
But I think what interests me, what fascinates me about the path of the games master, for want of a better term, is mm-hmm. that there are so many different ways to do it in... I mean, it was interesting when I was... Jackson Livingston quizzed me about what kind of gamer I was. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I went... In, and I said, I don't use uh, a Games Master screen because mm-hmm. when I was 12, 13, I was GMing a group and the guy reached up in front of the Games Master screen and pulled something, which was very critical, from behind it. He was a bit of a miscreant anyway. But <laughs> that immediately made me realize this is a defect in the way that I yeah. play and I stopped doing it. But what yeah. interests me in in doing this as well, this podcast, is yeah. when I interact with Chris Abbott, and when I see, I've seen photo evidence recently of his player's handbook plus Games Master's notes. So he didn't need the GM's guide, just needed the player's handbook. Mm-hmm. This is very much the way I did it as well. So you see these, these elements. And I think returning to something, maybe I should be asking questions associated with mm-hmm. your, your earlier experiences doing this thing as well. Because well, I, think, I can tell you, yeah. I can tell you something about the DM screen. I, my son made a lovely DM screen for for our Dungeon Saga game. And because that's a tabletop RPG dungeon crawler, you need to hide the monsters that you're going to put on the board. Mm. Um, and we always used it kind of off to one side. But, you know, you need to have them kind of pre-selected. And, I would you know, the you next... don't. So when I, when I do it at work, I don't do... I, I have all... I typically have maybe three or four miniature cases. But I uh-huh. will pre-select in this scenario. We're going to probably have some goblins. We're going to have some trolls. Mm-hmm. We're going to mm-hmm. and I line them up, but you know, in a ramshackle fashion, just like I was unpacking them, what have you. And sometimes uh-huh. twenty, thirty percent of them, I won't actually use in the game. They'll just be there mm-hmm. as, as fodder, but also mm-hmm. probability as well. I think what's interesting yes. is that yes. there are a variety of ways of doing this and. I guess, let me ask some questions about your earlier well, well, DMing let me, experience. Let me, yeah, let me, let me just finish this one, because mm-hmm. I think it's interesting about the DM screen, is that um, I, I wanted to take it with me mm-hmm. to, to, just, to, just to, for myself to show what my son's done. Um, not, not to show off in, any, in, a, in that sense, it's just to say, look, I love this thing. This is a lovely thing he's done. Mm. Here we go. And to give them a feeling of the type of gaming we're going to do. It's not the slick, glossy thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, every time I just got rid of it after a little while, I just moved it off. Mm. Um, and I didn't, and, you know, and then obviously didn't need it. My son pointed out that when it was on the table, the chaos of the table, it was slightly too small, um, seemed more orderly. Mm. As soon as it was gone, it just seemed like a table of mess. Mm-hmm. But when it came to the third game, I didn't even put it on the table. Mm. Um, and I had my little typed up notes that I'd done. And yeah, absolutely. So I completely agree with you that you shouldn't need the screen. It's it's nonsense. Um, so my earlier my earlier experience of gaming. I mean, this is yeah. I, I mean, I, I I touched on it when when in in my biographical segment, in my first <laughs> appearance. Um, it was, so for me, it was it was Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, Call mm. of Cthulhu, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, mm-hmm. Paranoia, and my encounters with Dungeons and Dragons were, were limited and just, I, it just seemed overly complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, um, How many of the, these did you yeah. GM specifically? I mean, these are ones where you were predominantly the yeah. player or were you actually gming them as well i so you know i also i also wanted to say a little bit about fighting fantasy in that before i got into all of this i was aware of fighting fantasy games um the the, book, the game books and even the the titan book somehow but it it meant nothing to me in terms of the the role play connection they had come that the success of the you know the millions of copies sold was was that was that was me in primary or secondary school with with uh early secondary school with no with no awareness of role play games at all Hmm. um except maybe titan except maybe the titan book somehow Mm um so so it's 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 weird thinking back and rejoining those dots. I had a I had a neighbour who 
possibly also then can kind of sent me on my way. I think he might have lived in America for a while and might have had an older brother. And that might have been <laughs> where he got the, uh, the, the, the miniatures and the role play gaming from. Mm. I remember he was a big Anne McCaffrey fan, mm-hmm. um, which being a little bit younger, perhaps just was kind of just seemed a bit, I'm not much of a high fantasist, mm. really. I'm not much of a high fantasist. So, um, so I can't quite remember the, the sequence of it all, really. I, I think, I think it was my memory of it is very soupy. Mm-hmm. And it probably was very soupy and it was just fascinating. The whole thing was totally fascinating. I, once I started getting into the games, I think apart possibly from this neighbor, I was the game master. Mm. I was the, the person driving this uh, little group of friends into these, into these areas. I seem to remember um, the comic shop in, in, in my local city had the role play, you know, had some role play games and that's where I got them all Mm. as far as I can gather. And, you know, much as we might've played them, you know, it seems my, my memory is that it, it's, it was incredibly hard to, to, to get anything to really hang together. Mm. Um, creating characters is always good fun. And, and, was great fun and um and i think i um i think i mentioned uh in in my in 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 our first uh chat that the 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 marienburg supplement in white dwarf was really captivating for me that you had this kind of sandbox city mm. or area of a city uh with all of these wonderful characters um with their secrets and their shops or their habits, um, you know. I think that was a great, great piece of work. And um, and I guess that 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 for me was was always that that was a really good way to try and start creating uh, adventures in in Marienburg. And um, so that was. And I remember having a supplement of the of the enemy within, mm. the one with this really grotesque this really go- grotesque character on. And in fact, I think the restless dead as well with all of the skeletons on as well. So, um, but, but I remember that, yeah, I don't know that, 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 that my, that my friends somehow and, but me as well in that combination, it was very difficult to, to when there's nothing on the table, when it's all in your mind or just maybe some photocopies or some, a few photocopies, you know, to, to, to get the thing going. And so I guess now, now being older and having, you know, meditated on it a lot and sucked it, you know, vacuumed it or hoovered it all up, I can set that ball rolling much more easily for my son, for example, or for these other people. And it was interesting. I had a couple of questions, people saying, oh, IGM as well. Thanks. That was really, you, you know, you taught me a lot. Um, is it one guy said is it just talent and i was standing there kind of scratching my head because i was thinking i haven't done this for ages or like this ever or uh mm. so it's interesting that you note specifically i mean particularly with regards to your students that obviously your academic training has added something to this thing i mean i reflect very heavily particularly associated with narrative and creating narrative that um, this was very important for me in my preteens, early teens, and to create universes and to create coherent worlds. And as you say, this notion that within a town, there are going to be stores, there are going to be secrets, uh-huh. there are going to be rumors, you know, creating uh-huh. this level of depth was something that was very important to me as a child. Mm-hmm. And replaying these games afterwards, I think of it more now in the context of film. I think of it more now in the context of, of story arcs, of soap operas, of these mm-hmm. kind of things in, in this sense. And it's interesting to me that there are so many different ways to explore this thing. And it was fascinating performing in front of Jackson and Livingston because you could see <laughs> one of them would light up and then the other one would light up. And then they'd talk about board games, which I don't really have much to say about, and they kind mm-hmm. of deflate. And then they'd raise something and they had this thing which was very interesting to 
try and dissect, you know, uh-huh. where I was, uh-huh. who I was in the context of their own minds. And it, the intimacy uh-huh. through this period, although there's no follow-on, I helped out uh-huh. in uh-huh. Livingston find Alan Merritt and that was that. But I don't think I'll have any, like, further correspondence. I might, if I was in the UK through a fighting fantasy fest and I was there with a friend, mm-hmm. I might take a friend along just to see mm-hmm. this thing in its thing, you know. But it, it's interesting to me that we all come to it, and particularly as children, we come to it with our own, you know, what you're describing here is is early teenage reticence, right? You don't want to be <laughs> okay. one that's slightly, you know, you know, whereas where I'm, where I was coming from, a majority of us had done some kind of performance arts, you know, I sang and did mm-hmm. lighting and all this kind of stuff, and most of my friends did some form of amateur dramatics. So the whole mm-hmm. nature of providing a narrative and these kind of things was second nature to us, I guess. Mm-hmm. But what's mm-hmm. interesting in the GMing relationship is you can have characters that actually probably would be better GMs than you would be. This is the interesting kind of paradox within it, but it's how you lead the narrative and how you leave the person feeling fulfilled in some sense. And what I yeah. found interesting through your description is um, – you kind of faked it until you made it in certain areas, at least in your describing. But what I'm interested in exploring more in is mm. once you've done it once, what refinements did you make? I mean, you, you made it more yeah. difficult. You tried to kill people more. What was the first yeah. iteration? What was the second iteration? What was the third iteration, aside from just making things more deadly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this wonderful combinatorial element to all of this. and And I think that appealed to me say with the fighting fantasy books as i'm sure it did to you this multiple the multiple possibilities and i think that does lean into academia and i wanted to say that for me a great thing about academic research is that you try and open things out so you can kind of take anything and open it out or you can connect it with multiple other things and find surprising connections so it's all about this kind of blossoming and and revelation of things and so it's so it is precisely interesting to to think about what set up that before academia and then to come back to it after academia if you like what so so the combinatorial elements are of what makes the scenario and the interaction between the gm and the players really interesting and of course because of those slight differences the combinatorial differences each session was was different so, for example, this this lone surviving character at, at the decimated shanty town, um, the last group decided to have two of them covering the window with guns, two of the others standing as lookouts, kind of, you know, if you like, the back of the building and the front of the building, hmm. and two of them knocking on the door. Now, that meant that compared to the first two iterations i couldn't have the character somehow hidden inside that was my original conception was that they would go in there was a bowl of steaming porridge on the table and nobody else around Mm. and and um i wanted them to kind of go in and look around find nothing and then all of a sudden there he is with the third one with the third iteration i just i thought they're just going to shoot him or something like that. Mm. You know, they're totally ready to just wipe him out. So I basically just swapped it so that he was heading down the path from wherever towards his house and is, and is completely non-antagonistic. Whereas before he was pointing a gun at them, the group and saying, what are you doing here? This time he's, he's, he was simply saying, who are you? Because because what I wanted the characters to do was to interact with him and uh, buy some equipment off him that he is more or less happy to part with um, and learn a bit more. So that was a big difference. The second group with the same character, the same lone character, because I guess apart from the rival, he was pretty much the only NPC that they met Mm. thinking about it now, Mm. although the rival had a whole gang with him which I could talk about if you wanted, but but to stick with this guy, the second group wanted to make a business contract with him about ferrying the uh, the power possibilities um, 
up back up to the surface so they would do a deal um and actually that was partly triggered i think a little bit from one of the characters being the disgraced lawyer who mm. has a magical contract that if you can get someone to sign it the minute that they break the contract they'll be struck down by lightning from heaven mm. so a funny kind of a trap item there so they really wanted to enter they didn't use the 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 trick the trick contract but they they wanted to enter into a business uh relationship with the guy which complete was completely left field to me mm. because it as far as from where i was coming from it served absolutely no purpose in the scenario but of course it was great it was wonderful and this is this is you know to come back to this issue of playing in a group with a campaign and playing a one shot at a convention with people you don't know it was really interesting to try and sow seeds of interest for any future activity that we might do if we run it again or more mm. um and also to to try and get them to imagine what that future beyond the game might be so that to me seemed like some of that creative thinking in that direction interesting so that's yeah uh, i mean with the with the big end bosses and the power supply uh, it that was different every every time and 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 i i kind of embraced in advance the idea that basically the the, the climax is going to be an anti-climax because it's not going to it's it's the it's the decline of agency and make believe isn't it it it's winding down um and and actually i'd i'd put a i'd put a hidden i'd put a hidden treasure in it that had certain requirements that needed to be fulfilled in order for it to be potentially revealed right at the end and it was only the third group that fulfilled all of those criteria and indeed found the item so that was interesting. Hmm. You've left a lot of food for thought here, Barney. <laughs> I'm, I'm decompressing whether we should touch on any of our other topics or whether we should just leave Probably it. Probably not. Probably not, because because I, you know, when you talk, you, we were going to talk a little bit about about your trips to the UK, and you know, when you were talking earlier on there about about watching, thinking about yourself as a gamer, and and seeing these 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 hugely influential figures Jackson and Livingston kind of slightly inflate and deflate in front of you <laughs> like little helium balloons or something yes. that that I was thinking well you know if you're going to look into some kind of a gaming mirror if you're going to look into some cosmic magical reflection machine that 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 you know tells you something new about yourself or hidden or i don't know or a new just a, a totally new thing about yourself you know that must have been a great moment you know that must have been almost like consulting that kind of oracle in that sense not that it in a way had anything per se to do with them but just your your own relation to them that history of of the fighting fantasy well it's interesting because the whole thing was rather surreal as one might imagine it would be. It played into, in part, with a little jet lag, um, which was particularly pronounced this trip. And also, I appreciated that I was the first person that they met through this mm. thing. So mm. um, I didn't want to... But also, their influence on... Fighting fantasy, for me, is a forgotten memory, quite literally. I stopped playing them when I was about eight. I have mm. really very limited recollection the fact that i have good recollection associated with games workshop is because when i arrived in the uk in my mid-20s i purchased a series of magazines which reminded me of my early teens i mm -hmm. have quite profound brought about through a variety of factors memory loss and it's actually really very curious to have the experience because i wanted to talk to them about the 85 to 91 period that they mm -hmm. were at Games Workshop, where they really weren't at Games Workshop. They sure, wrapped yeah. things up in such a way. And what I realised when I was in front of them was actually what they had done since, but also little just quizzical things interested me. So we talked a little bit about 
Gary Gygax's widow and what has happened there. The Tunnels and Trolls guy mm-hmm. who I've had some connection with in not a particularly positive light had just passed away as well. Obviously, oh. uh, Mike Brunton as well have passed away. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, they were joking about their own mortality in a very curious fashion too. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing experience, but I need to point this out very clearly. I paid about 500 US dollars to have the experience. And I realized very quickly that this was, that in and of itself was a curious thing. So there were many layers to this thing. One of the lighter moments was I was walking back. They, as you know, probably with universities, all the toilet facilities at Fighting Fantasy Fest were broken mysteriously for the event. So there was actually a (laughs) choose your own adventure, find a maze through closed things to find (laughs) <laughs> facilities that actually worked in the building so okay, with, a, with a kind of countdown mechanism well, something like that anyway so what it was fascinating because we all went and you're talking here about 200 people in yeah. i i'm not sure if you know the what is it the university of west london or whatever but it's a relatively i think i've been there yeah it's a it's a small campus in a in a kind of building so we were all using our our map faking skills to try to find facilities so on the way back <laughs> i'd found they finally had opened up one and it had become a lot easier. But on the way walking back from <laughs> one, looking very proud of myself having found this one, I crossed paths with Steve Jackson and he was just beaming, seeing me coming back and knowing what he was, you know, going on a similar adventure. Mm-hmm. We had this amazing mm-hmm. kind of passing in the hallway moment where we both laughed at each other because we knew what was going on here. So, you know, mm. there were, that that I think is a vignette that I'll take away from this. Hearing. I've got two. I've got two. I think little questions for Certainly. you. You know, you've been you've been talking about meeting them for some time. Mm. You know, since mm. since as long as I can remember mm-hmm. within the podcast. And and I and I wonder if now that you've met them, if what that feels like, or what the next, what you feel the next step is for the podcast, or if it changes that, or anything well, to that the, the, nature. The relationship of them and the podcast was always going to be rather curious. I mean, I have historically met my childhood heroes and had long-term relationships with them, and because based on that experience not being particularly positive, I came to this thing with a slightly mercenary view. Mm-hmm. They're both gentlemen who I think are fascinating, but I didn't want to I didn't necessarily want them to be guests on the podcast. I mean, I joked about that being a possibility. Um, Mm -hmm. What it made me realize was that the period of time that fascinates me about Games Workshop is actually out of the remit of the Diceman book that they're working on. I've also, since Mm -hmm. meeting them, read the two large fighting fantasy tomes about the history of fighting fantasy, which, if Mm -hmm. I can say here, amongst friends, are really bad. (laughs) <laughs> and my concern here is that I put $500 into a book which probably won't tick any of the boxes that I originally wanted. There's a real, you know, these things are, are concerns to me. I am hopeful that Alan Merritt, under my prompting, and hopefully also Ian Livingston's prompting, will consider writing the book that I want to read, <laughs> which is uh-huh. The Citadel Years. Um, uh-huh. But it, it, through this, it's just a really... It was an interesting trip because this was the primary reason that I took the trip. At the same point, there was a bunch of other things that happened as well. It's a life experience, right? I have a, I'm looking literally at the white dwarf and couple of fighting fantasy books that they signed. Um, mm-hmm. but for me, it did more about remind. I mean, going to fighting fantasy fest reminded me of my eight year old self in a very curious way, but also it, the importance that the people at fighting fantasy fest had for fighting fantasy was not an importance that I had. It wasn't revelationary to me because it was just part of a path. And when I met them, I said to them, I write computer simulations because I played fighting fantasy. And then I, you know, did these other things and D and D and all these things, which were all important. And the ability to have this world of creative mental space that I could then map into computer Mm -hmm. software created my career. And they were formative people they were part of this. So I made it clear, I thanked them profusely for this thing, but they are part of a tapestry of a lot of things that occurred through this. So look, what's Mm. happening with this podcast, specifically right here now, is that it represents three friendships that I have, of which you are one. And (laughs) in addition to this, 
I want to explore how I create these games in a whimsical fashion. Now, mm. that means video currently. So I've got literally the hex mat and the, the you know, I've got the orcs versus human stuff ready. Uh-huh. And it's making those videos. But what fascinates me through this is that you, Chris Abbott and Matthew Gibson have an evolving part of this podcast as well. And it's it's important for me to explore some of these aspects through you in a way that is then put out in audio form. So have I answered your question? I don't think this podcast is going to end. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. And I wasn't I wasn't worried about that. It was more like it was it it felt like you know, to listen to the episodes and mm. to talk with you about it, it was a kind of a, a future marker. And now that that marker's passed, I was I was whimsically, whimsically wondering if that if that clears the horizon for you, or or if if something else comes up. But yes, I think you know you you have answered, you have answered it, and it's and it's and it's a great it's a great pleasure to be. Part of this part experiment. Of, part, of, <laughs> part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Yes. Well, with that, let us conclude the formal recording. And maybe at a future recording, we can explore some of the other topics that you put down here. I know uh, for you and for me, the next few weeks are going to be rather choppy, but hopefully oh, yeah. we'll be able to find some time in the future to uh, to record once again on some of these other topics. Without a doubt. I'll talk to you soon, Barney. Take care. Bye-bye.